Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's show. You don't care. I care. People don't want to be introduced. They want to know what's going on immediately in the first five seconds of the video. Otherwise, there's the cat video right next to it on YouTube saying, meow, meow, look at me, click on me. Okay. Maybe we should start a second channel of Euro dollar cat videos. What can the long depression of the late 19th century tell us about the silent depression of the early 21st century? We turn to a late 19th century author who may have written the most popular economic book of all time to see what he got right, what he got wrong, and what we can apply to today. I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, Head of Global Research for Alhambra Investments. My name is Emil Kalinowski. This is Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. Jeff, you wrote a essay for Real Clear Markets today, November 20th, 2020. And the title of that, for anyone that wants to join us and read along, the title is The Economic Emergency in 2020 and Beyond Won't Be COVID. You start out by introducing us to a period called the Gilded Age. When was it? Why was it called so? In the post-Civil War era, usually, you know, 1870, 1880s, and 1890s, that was the Gilded Age. And one of the reasons it was called the Gilded Age was because it represented a, a very stark period in history with massive inequality. You had very wealthy people. You had very poor people, and it seemed like there wasn't much of the two mixing. There wasn't the kind of upward mobility, certainly that we saw in the 20th century, which you know we expect when we have uh, these periods, especially the Industrial Revolution coming to America, lots of technological and innovative progress, but yet for a quite a long period there, it kind of seemed like we were stuck in a rut and stagnated. And it was, you know, it's one of those time periods in history that has, you know, uh, stuck in our collective consciousness. For those reasons, you know, something wasn't right back then. And it started out in the 1870s with what was a really, a pretty sharp and, and severe depression. That's right. In 1873, in your article, you say it was, it began in 1872. I thought it began in 1873, uh, kicked off in the v Vienna's World's Fair, didn't go off according to plan. It was a big failure, much like our modern day Olympics. And it's not particularly important why it happened in Vienna, but just that spark of a, of a conflagration that was going to happen anyway started in Vienna. It went to Germany, Berlin, then to London, hit New York throughout the rest of the year. So I thought it started in 1873. You say it started in 1872. Does it, why do you have it as 1872? Well, it's, it's like, you know, 2007 and 2008, right? I mean, everybody thinks the 2008 crisis began in 2008, but in fact, there were precursor events. There were warning signs that showed up as late as early as late 20, 2006. So there were some things in 1872 that showed up that said, you know, th this is going the wrong way. And eight, you're right, 1873 is when most of the major events happened. And I think most economists and historians say, okay, the Depression actually began in 1873, but I think we were in the wrong direction in 1872 and things were going south already uh, back then. So the essay starts in the Gilded Age and the location, the setting is Scranton, Pennsylvania, best known today for uh, being the birthplace of jo Joseph Biden, as well as, of course, there's that docudrama regarding paper products called The Office. 
What happened in the 1870s in Scranton? Well, I mean, any kind of depression, any kind of severe economic downturn, you're going to end up with labor market unrest. And so in eight, there was a great strike in 1877, which was, you know, four or five years, depending on your date, four or five years after the beginning of the depression, which shows you that this was a really severe, bad event. You have five years of wages being cut because that's back then. That's what, that's what business owners did when faced with economic shortfall, shortfall in revenue and demand. The only way to stay afloat was to cut your labor costs as much as you could. That didn't, that meant, you know, not only just, uh, not only uh, laying off workers, but also reducing the rates at which you pay the existing workers that, that are left on your payrolls. Very severe labor market deflation year after year after year, which led to the great strikes of 1877, which began in Ohio, spread throughout you know, Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania, and out into the central and northern part of Pennsylvania where Scranton was. And it, it got so bad that there was essentially a, a, a riot, almost a rebellion, in, in and around Scranton that required all sorts of, you know, Pennsylvania National Guard troops and then actual federal soldiers coming into Scranton so that, you know, in in late 1877, Scranton, was, Scranton, Pennsylvania was the most heavily fortified and guarded place on the planet Earth. Amazing. And much like our depression, uh, started in 2008, and there's been a lot of finger pointing, a lot of blame. People are trying to figure out what started it. Was it a mortgage crisis? Was it caused by greedy Americans? Was it caused by greedy bankers? Did it not start? Was it not a mortgage crisis? Did it start in Lombard Street in London? Was it a banking crisis? Same thing in the 1870s. People were trying to explain this bizarre, long-lasting depression that's very similar to what we're experiencing now or the Great Depression. It was a worldwide event. And there was a lot of finger pointing being done who were some of the uh, people that were being accused or groups of people? Yeah, and I think that's an important point to realize is that back then, you know, economic science or political economy, as it was called, really didn't have a handle on the business cycle because we didn't really know there was a business cycle. On one, of the, one of the downsides of the Industrial Revolution, there's lots of upsides, but one of the downsides was we had these waves of mass unemployment and deflationary wage pressures that suddenly erupted that, you know, in a feudal agrarian society or even just a, a primitive uh, capitalist or free market society didn't feature these kinds of, you know, depressionary circumstances that were, you know, absolutely stunning in their, in their depth and sometimes their lengths. And so you're one of these poor, unfortunate workers. One day you had a, what you thought was a really good job working on a railroad or in a coal mine, which, you know, obviously that doesn't sound very good to us today. But back then, you steady work like that was, was actually pretty lucrative. And the next day, you're, you know, you're getting your wages cut. And then the next month, you're getting your wages cut again as a, several of your friends are being laid off. And you're wondering, what the hell's going on here? And there's really nobody to give you answers. And, of course, when, in a vacuum without answers – people start blaming everybody else. And so it's really, you know, whoever your, your enemies happen to be, that's the person that's probably, that, 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 uh, that's probably responsible for all your misery. And so, you know, the trade groups, you know, the, the railroads and the mining companies all blame the trade unions. They blamed high taxes. The bankers always blamed the, the uh, farmers because they were agitating for loose money and silver and all sorts of other things. And it was just really, Nobody really had a good idea of what was going on while it was going on, which just makes for an extremely volatile, 
uh, explosive mess. Well, a few people did have some good ideas that resonated with the public. Uh, William Jennings Bryan would run for office. He was perhaps America's second populist, uh, most famous populist after uh, Andrew Jackson. Uh, but we also have a character that you introduce us to in this article whose name is Henry George, who may have written the most popular economic textbook of all time, you say. Yeah, I think it is actually the best-selling economic textbook ever written. And it's odd because you think, okay, here's this guy, Henry George, who back in the 19, late 19th century, and even into the early 20th century, everybody knew who this guy was. I mean, he was, he was the economist. He, he, not only did he influence other economists, he was very popular in the mainstream. Um, you know, in the late eight, I think the Dallas Fed said in the, in the late 1890s, his book was only outsold in the English, lang in the English language by the Bible. So people were reading his, his main opus, which was called Progress and Poverty, because they understood what he was saying. And what he was saying was, these depressions aren't just random. Something happens in, in what he called an impediment in the, inter, in the uh, machinery of exchange. Something interrupts natural processes. You know, it's not as if all of a sudden businesses have too many goods to sell, or all of a sudden consumers don't want to buy goods. Because in these depressions, what ends up happening is we're not just talking about luxury goods. We're talking about basic foods, basic shelter. It gets so bad in these, depression, in these depressions that workers end up in extreme poverty. So it can't be that they don't want to buy goods. Something is preventing the natural order of economic processes from taking place in the way that they normally have. Something changes. And that's really where these depressions came from some impediment to exchange. And George said, I think it's land. And he gave a reasoned argument why it would be land. And you explained that that's probably why we don't hear of him today is because we have outgrown as a society, as a, as a, as a culture, as a species, the reliance on land. Is that right? Yeah, and I think it, you know, it made sense in the time period that George lived in that because, you know, economic progress, everything in his mind, you could reduce down to some component of, you know, the physical space in which we live in. And so all economy must take place on that land. And therefore, the way we're distributing land, the way we're using land, the incentives for or not, not for using land, these were the impediments in the machinery of exchange in Henry George's mind. And that's why people could understand what he was saying. And he even had what he thought was a way to circumvent these problems and not have depressions anymore, which was abolish private ownership of land because he called it our common inheritance, which meant that, look, land is everywhere. It's scarce. Therefore, it can't be owned privately. We all own it together. Now, he was no communist or socialist. And, and what he advocated and what he said was that, okay, the land belongs to all of us. So if you have good ideas and you want to use the land to create some, you know, some, some capitalist or some business prospects, go ahead. You rent the land from the government. And then whatever you can do on that land, whether it be farming, industry, whatever, you keep the profits of it because you, you, that, because, uh, you get the, the benefits of your own exertions. And he thought by doing that, a high tax rate on land where all the revenues would go to the government, what he called a single tax, 
that would be the least interruptive in society, especially the economic processes, because you're not taxing production, you're not taxing labor, you're only taxing what, would, what, what he said was our common inheritance. And because the tax rate would be high enough, that meant that only the best quality ideas Therefore, we would be using uh, our land and our resource, natural resources to maximum efficiency if we did it this way. And somehow, why wasn't this taken up? I mean, he ran for office, he pointed out, uh, for the mayor of New York City. He didn't win. Why do you think this wasn't taken up? Well, was it was. It? I, mean, I mean, a lot of I mean, the Fabian Society in England, the people's budget in 1909 in the United Kingdom, which was a, represented a massive change in the way the United Kingdom uh, had operated before, they took up the idea of a single tax. And so the single tax wasn't, you know, the whole reason we have property taxes today goes back to the single tax. So it wasn't as if, you know, Georgism, as it was called, was, you know, uh, more of a, a ephemeral sort of idea. It was actually seriously considered. It was very much debated. And in some places, it succeeded in changing some of the aspects, or at least the way we think about some of these economic aspects. So it did make an imprint and did leave an imprint in uh, certainly political society as well as economic society. Viewers and listeners may be surprised to hear, though, that George, however, didn't feel too strongly about that the impediment would be money. And I'm going to read a quote here, and you take it from there, Jeff. Quote, every, this is from George in 1894. Every businessman sees that business depression comes from a lack of purchasing power on the part of would-be consumers, or as our colloquial phrase is, from their lack of money. But money is only an intermediary performing in exchanges the same office that poker chips do in a game, which is why, if for those of you joining me on YouTube, you can see I'm on, I'm on my way to a Baccarat game. In the last analysis, it is a labor certificate. The great, great mass of consumers obtain money by exchanging their labor or the proceeds of their labor for money, and with it, purchasing commodities. Thus, what they really pay for commodities is with labor. So money is not that important to them. No, and he's exactly right, except for that last part. That's what money is. It is an intermediary. It is nothing more than a token. But it is an, exact, it is an extremely vital token. History has shown time and again that it is. And think about his poker chip analogy. What happens if you're at a poker game and you don't have enough chips? The game stops, or at least it, gets, it slows down. The betting slow. I mean, everything changes. You have to have the tokens, right? And if you don't have enough tokens, it becomes an impediment in the media, in the uh, machinery of exchange. And so I think you know George was saying, look, we can reduce labor, we can reduce capitalism down to the land, and by doing so, that must mean that that money and these tokens really aren't important. What really matters is labor's relationship to land use and productive capacity. But, you know, there's always that idea, okay, but no matter how much capacity there may be, if you don't have the tokens to allow a specialized economy to operate efficiently, it will harm and hinder the, the operation of that economy. And that's, that's what we see in our modern age. It's what we've seen in, 1870, in the 1870s and especially in the Depression in the 1890s was that once you have monetary interruptions, these bank panics, what always inevitably follows from them are the most extreme economic downturns, depressions. 
because without enough tokens, without the redistribution and circulation of those tokens, these specialized economic processes, which require the tokens to take place, they cannot take place, or they can take place, but they can't take place as efficiently and as flexibly and dynamically as we need them to. So the tokens, it, I think it was a huge mistake on George's part, and one of the reasons why nobody today even knows about Henry George is because in assigning the, the, the uh, cause of depression to land, over time it became clear that that wasn't really the impediment in the natural order. So George was good in that he said, look, these depressions are not random. They're not political. They're not, you know, uh, trade unions versus, you know, robber barons or something like that. They're an important specific interruption in the, uh, in, in the exchange, in the uh, mechanism of exchange. And as you started out this article, it then affects labor, which is where we're going to transition to next in part two of episode 36. Is the employment situation in the United States now seven months after the worst of the lockdowns were lifted, still delivering the ugliest numbers since the Great Depression? Jeff, you're, uh, Jeff Snyder, head of global research for Alhambra Investments, you posted a blog post at the Alhambra Investments website. It's titled, It Will Have to Be Our New Weekly Ritual. That was on November 19th. What is the ritual? Why are we having this ritual? Yeah, and I think it's the ritual is every Thursday, the Department of Labor and the specific agency they task with uh, uh, maintaining and monitoring and tabulating the uh, weekly uh, jobless claims and unemployment rolls. They come out every Thursday and tell us what you know, what the number was for the number of Americans filing initial claims to determine eligibility at their local state off unemployment offices, as well as how many American or at least former American workers are continuing on with the getting unemployment insurance payments. And really, I mean, yeah, obviously jobless claims, unemployment, these kinds of things are something you're really concerned about. And you can see and appreciate why they're, why they're so important during a contractionary phase because obviously the number of unemployed suddenly spike and they, uh, they, they apply for government aid in lieu of jobs they no longer hold. But after a period of time, you would expect, okay, jobless claims start to come back down and then we don't care about them so much anymore because there's this thing called recovery. Recovery previous to 2008, 2007, however you want to characterize that 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 uh, that crisis, 2007, 2008. But before that one, up until that point, these business cycles, the contraction recovery cycles, were always symmetrical. So once you reach the peak in unemployment claims or unemployment, however you want to define it. Um, on its way back down, you could kind of forget about jobless claims again because you were reasonably certain that within a, a very short period of time or, or at least a reasonable period of time, things would be going back to normal. So once you reach the peak, past the peak, it's, it's pretty much a done issue. And the idea of symmetry was discussed by us in a previous episode. I think it was episode 32 or 31. It had to do with the unit route. So interested uh, viewers can look for that. And it had to do with Milton Friedman's plucking model, which showed that economies would hit recessions and then bounce back to previous trends. We saw that, however, there are these exceptions, Great Depressions, Silent Depressions, Long Depressions. 
And what we're seeing right now, Jeff, is that this, that some other economic accounts are suggesting a big comeback, you write, but this, this one, the labor market is refuting it very heavily, very strongly. Can you put into context for us? Because the number, you know, numbers are inflated so much these days, we don't really know. So can you put into context 742,000 initial claims to determine eligibility for unemployment insurance for the week in the mid-November? What does that mean, that number? Yeah, initial claims are people who are recently let go, involuntarily separated, as the government says. And so they, they go to the local state unemployment office and say, I've been let go from my job involuntarily. I didn't leave. I didn't quit. My work, my employer said, I no longer am going to pay you, so stop showing up. And so they, they file for eligibility. Whether or not they, they, the eligibility is determined or not, that's not the issue here. The issue is how many people are filing for eligibility determination. And that tells us, it gives us a sense of the rate of labor market distress going on at that current period of time. And as you pointed out, Emil, 742,000 initial claims in the middle of November means that's eight months later, eight months into this thing, initial jobless claims are above every other week in history prior to March. We're still at record, what would have been record levels eight months later. And what's more concerning, what's probably the most concerning is the fact that the rate of improvement and it has improved. We can't, we, I mean, at, at the uh, beginning of March, it was something like 6.8 million weekly claims. So it's ridiculously huge. And it's gotten less ridiculously huge over time. But the rate of improvement has slowed down since around June and July, which we've seen a number of other data that tells us, yes, things are getting better. We had this reopening rebound. Everything kind of flooded back and it, sounded, it kind of looked like everything was going to be a V-shaped recovery, that symmetry that we're looking for. And then it stopped way, way short of that sometime around summer. And so now for the last three, four, five months, whatever it's been, it's been a much different situation where, we, where we're not even close to recovery and we're getting in, you know, we're still getting these labor market numbers that are at record, un, uh, record uh, unemployment filings. In another one of your articles this past week, the week of November 20th, you reference a Reuters article which questions how well these, uh, these numbers are really looking. So, okay, so some financial uh, media are reporting that these numbers aren't very good, but others probably aren't. And they may be reporting to our audience who's listening right now that the continuing claims are falling precipitously. That might be a headline. Great news, continuing claims falling very quickly. Is it is that good news? Is it true? Is that what's really happening? Yeah, and they are. And they've actually accelerated in the decline since around the beginning or middle of September, which if you know, I mean, the uh, unemployment claims are, are state payment. They're not a federal government payment. You go to your local state office, they're the ones who actually pay out the uh, unemployment insurance. Sure, the states get money from the federal government at times, but it's the state that's actually responsible for doing the, uh, uh, managing and maintaining and paying out the claims. But you only get, in most states, you only get 26 weeks of payments. After 26 weeks, what's assumed is that you'll be back to work. And why 
we assume you'll be back to work is because of symmetry, right? We have recovery. As soon as the economy stops contracting and starts recovering, 26 weeks, which is half a year, should be long enough for everyone to get back to work, or at least reasonably uh, long enough for a reasonable amount of uh, former workers to get back into the workforce. So what we've seen, uh, uh, you know, since middle of September is that the uh, initial or the continued claims have fallen precipitously because more and more Americans have exhausted their 26 weeks. 26 weeks from the middle of March goes to the middle of September. And so they're just exhausting their benefits. And many of them, in fact, several million have rolled onto an extended pandemic emergency unemployment claim. And so they're now getting additional benefits from the federal government. So some of the, the drop in continued claims tells us that, yes, the economy is still rebounding. Things are still moving forward, but we don't know exactly at what rate they're doing what it's doing. So and the fact that so many are going on to the pandemic claims suggests that it's nowhere near as rapid as we need it to be, as certainly as the unemployment rate seems to make it look like. And it's probably more so like what we're seeing in initial jobless claims, which is continued elevation of labor market harm. And Jeff, to help readers picture this or grasp it better, what you did is you created a graph showing America's worst three recessions of the past 40 years. And I'm going to pull that up. And can you walk the listeners, the viewers through what you are showing on this graph? Well, we're, what we're interested in is the recovery, right? And so... Let's look at how the uh, jobless claims numbers fit into prior uh, business cycles, downturns, whatever you want to call it, uh, in, in, in the past. And especially what we're, what we're interested in, severe downturns, because obviously we're into a severe downturn right now. We want to make sure we're analyzing apples to apples, or at least as close to apples to apples as we can. So if we normalize the initial jobless claims numbers as excess above what the average had been before the recession struck, what you find is that in the 1981-82 double dip recession, which was up until two th before 2007, that was the big recession. That was the nastiest recession that we had experienced since the Great Depression. But yet it, it largely conformed to symmetry. It was a severe downturn and it actually followed the recession that happened in 1980. So it was a double dip. And then even though it was a double dip recession and one of the worst uh, on record is certainly in the post-war period, where the unemployment rate got up into double digits then, like it did in 2007, 2008, 2009, the initial jobless claims numbers show that once you got to the peak, it started to recover and everything was good. And, and in fact, I mean, I'm, uh, people, most people uh, who, are, uh, who lived through that period understood that because the, the uh, economic growth rates in the middle 1980s were extremely robust. So there was no doubt that that was an actual recovery. And here you have jobless claims data basically confirming the idea of symmetry because within about eight months, the excess jobless claims were gone. Initial claims, these are initial claims. So the labor market had gotten itself sort of back to uh, a, a normal position, in fact, better than normal because from there on, economic growth was extremely robust throughout the rest of the decade. Now contrast that with our 2008, 2009, and into 2010 and beyond experience, and what you see is isn't that at all. The initial jobless claims spiked as they do in, in all these recessions. But then after the peak, yes, they got better, but they didn't get better at quite the same rate or in quite the same manner. When you look at it as excess jobless claims, it actually took around five years 
for the for the jobless claims part of it to normalize back to where it had been before the the quote unquote great recession which suggests that something else was going on something was hindering the recovery from that point forward and remember we're comparing really bad recessions here 1981-82 versus 2008-2009 so it can't be the severity of the recession that explains why there wasn't symmetry in the recovery following it and so what was the major difference between 81-82 and 08 and 09 and obvi the obvious answer is of course the global financial crisis, which happened starting in 2007, lasting into 2009. And as we've said before, in other labor market data numbers, including the labor force itself, after October 2008, for the first time in post-war history, the size of the labor force actually shrunk, which is reflected in, I believe, what you're seeing in, this, in the data for excess jobless claims which is the fact that it was not symmetrical in recovery, and it left us in a worse place, a worse condition following the crisis as, the, as we had been in before. And that was very different from 1981-82. That isn't the only difference, but that is a big difference and a primary difference, considering what we had just talked about in the previous segment with Henry George and the impediment in the machinery of exchange in the economy. And so the question now is, go ahead, Emil. No, I want, what is the question? Yeah, the question now is, we look at the jobless claims figures for 2020, which one are we following? Are we seeing symmetry? Are we seeing asymmetry? In the, in the, uh, especially when we start looking at the summer slowdown that is showing up across a wide variety of data, it seems, you know, unfortunately clear that we're probably more in looking at asymmetry than symmetry. And that's really the big concern because, you know, as bad as the shutdown was, if it had been just a non-economic shutdown, as, as we had been told, really that's the only part of the contraction. Once we, once we reopened the economy, got everything back up and running, every, you know, uh, things would go back to normal fairly quickly. That's not what we're seeing in the data. In fact, with, with, with jobless claims, again, uh, this in the middle of November, at rates that would have been record highs beforehand, that's a sign that, you know, more asymmetry on the downside, more asymmetry where recovery should be. And that's really going to be a problem because, I mean, let's face it, we've been talking about this stuff. We've been talking about QE and central banks and euro dollars and all these things for the last dozen years because the economy had never recovered from that last one. And so now if we got another one to worry about, what does that mean for the economy going forward? You just said that we've been talking about central bank actions, QE, for the last dozen years. But actually, Jeff, we've been talking about them for the last 20 years because Japan implemented the first QE in 2001. And that's where we're going to turn to next in part three of episode 36. Credit is the lifeblood of the global economy. And one of the best places to turn to to see how the circulatory uh, system is working is the Treasury International Report. You won't hear about it on Bloomberg or CNBC, but here on this show on Making Sense with Jeff Snyder, we do talk about it. Jeff, recently- well, hey, I, I'm going to disagree with you, Emil, because you do hear about it on mainstream media, but usually for the wrong reasons, right? Whenever you hear tickets, oh, foreigners are dump dumping treasuries. They hate, the, they hate America. They hate Trump. They hate, you know, they hate something. They hate dollars. They're de-dollarizing. So- Usually when you do hear about tick, it's always for the wrong reasons. And as we've stated before and we've shown before, 
when foreigners are selling treasuries, that's not a that's not a bad sign for treasuries. That's a bad sign for everybody. That means dollar shortage. That means all the bad things. So when we look at Treasury International Capital tick report, we all we have to really we have to realize and normalize it and and and, and put it in a framework that it can be interpreted as the data is actually showing. And really, we got to be careful here. And, and I, I try to I try to say this uh, as many times as I can. It is not a comprehensive view of what's going on in the global dollar system because there is no such thing. There is no comprehensive view. We only have the data that we have, which in this case, which we're, we're going to talk a little bit about, I think, the Treasury part of it. But mostly we're going to talk about cross-border bank activities, what U.S. banks are doing in relation to their foreign counterparts. And in this specific instance, we're going to be talking about what American banks are lending or claims on their foreign counterparts in various jurisdictions around the world. And that's another thing. And that's, that's one of the really good things about TIC is that, you know, we think of a euro dollar system as a monolithic system, that it's, it's a global system. Therefore, it's the same in the European part or the, the Asian part as it is in every other part. When that's not always true. There can be some things happening in one part that aren't happening in another part. And maybe that's just a difference in timing, but we really have to realize that it's a, because it's a global system, there are definitely regional pockets and regional considerations we have to take into account too. I have just pulled up a graph from an article called Redistributing a Shrinking Pie is Nothing Like a Flood because there was no flood. It was posted on November 18th at Alhambra Investments. And the graph I pulled up is the one that you brought out to our attention right away, the one that does make it into the mainstream financial press which is official buying or selling of U.S. Treasury bonds and notes. This data here starts from 2014, Jeff. So it suggests, it seems to say, they're always selling. But if we pull this data back further, this graph back further, it would be completely different, though, wouldn't it? And I guess the good news is that we've seen very recently some buying again. Good. Right. That's, and that's, again, it's the opposite. Everything's backwards. When, when foreign official, and official by official, we mean governments and mostly central banks. So when overseas central banks are selling their treasuries, it's because they're experiencing dollar shortage and they have to mobilize their foreign reserves, which are primarily in U.S. treasuries, especially in U.S. dollar denominations. They have to sell them off to try to supply some dollars that the euro dollar market is not feeding into their local systems. So when we see official buy or official selling take place very heavily, what we expect is all that rising dollar um, treasury rally stuff to take place. Whereas when they're buying treasuries again, as they had been consistently, be, well, less consistently between 2009 and 2014, before, 2000, before 2008, they were almost always buying hand over fist because they were all accumulating reserves because the euro dollar system was throwing off dollar resources to every part of every corner of the globe. So this selling phenomenon is relatively recent because the dollar shortage has gotten particularly bad, especially across Asia and in the emerging market parts of the, of the system. But in the last couple of months, we've seen a little bit of that reverse and there's been some minor buying on net in uh, official, official purchases of U.S. treasuries. Well, let me put a fly in the ointment because the next graph down is of corporate securities. Right now we're looking at what are U.S. Treasury bonds. The next one we're going to look at corporate U.S. bonds. And what do we see there? 
Now we get into what the private side, the not central banks and not foreign government, but private, mostly financial uh, counterparties, finance banks and non-banks are doing. And what they're doing, especially since December 2018, is more and more buying fewer corporate bonds. US, remember, these are U.S. dollar-denominated corporate bonds. And ever since the early part of this year, they've been really selling them. Uh, in fact, in July, they sold so many. It was, it was, it was such a record low that it was, it was, it was a, a reminder that though Jay Powell says, hey, I'm supporting the corporate bond market. There's absolutely nothing to worry about here. We're going to be buying bonds and ETFs and all sorts of other things. Foreigners are saying, well, okay, now you may be supporting the corporate bond market, but we, aren't, we don't believe you. The foreigners are selling corporate bonds at a rate we've never seen before, which suggests, number one, if, if they are still experiencing a dollar shortage, which we know that they are, they're selling their corporate bond holdings in order to meet them. And so that may explain why governments, foreign officials sector, have been able to buy a few treasuries over the last couple of months because private hands are selling their corporate bonds so heavily. There was news just today from the Wall Street Journal that corroborates the September data. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin declined to extend several emergency Fed lending programs, novel programs backing corporate credit and municipal borrowing markets, and lending to small and mid-sized businesses and nonprofits during the pandemic will end December 31st. The Fed signaled its disappointment in this decision. We'll see if it actually ends, though. But I want to keep going now, and because you said that's what we just discussed is amazing. Perhaps the audience didn't hear it. Selling at rates not seen before of U.S. corporate bonds. But you say there's something even more interesting, and that is happening in Japan. But to do that, we have to look through the lens of China. And to do that, we've got to look through the lens of the Caribbean and Europe. Before we get to that main part of the, the article, I'm going to ask you to define a couple of sentences, okay? Um, let me quote you here. Quote, for one thing, U.S. dollar bank liabilities continue to contract as overseas dollar swaps, which aren't so much overseas, are almost totally paid back. What does that mean, Jeff? Well, it's, if, um, it shows up as a U.S. dollar liability because American banks or you know, uh, U.S. subsidiaries of foreign parents that are located domiciled in the United States, they're the ones who are borrowing heavily of these quote-unquote overseas dollar swaps. So it shows up as a cross-border transaction. It shows up as U.S. banks' claims on foreign counterparties because essentially those foreign counterparties are, are, are sending dollars back into the United States. And the point being is we don't want to see U.S. bank liabilities contracting, right? We want to see them expanding, signaling money creation, growth, reflation, recovery. Is right. that so right? As, right. As they're repaying these dollar swap balances, that reduces their bank liabilities. But it, it, we're also not seeing an increase in their liabilities. Again, these are cross-border liabilities. We're not seeing an increase in them for other reasons, which would be, hey, things are good. We believe Jay Powell. There's a flood of dollars. Whatever it is, whatever reflationary, uh, 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 um, whatever reflationary reason you might want to assign, we're not seeing banks expand their balance sheets in these cross-border relationships as you would expect 
if things were going back to normal, if we were going back into a reflationary period. Instead, in the third quarter, it was a pretty substantial decline in reported bank liabilities in these cross-border uh, U.S. dollar arrangements. Right. Okay. So because dollars still seem to be tight. That's what we're seeing there. Okay. Right, so let's- again, make the point that this is not comprehensive. This doesn't, this isn't the, the total picture of the, the entire euro dollar system. It's a proxy that we believe gives us a reasonable estimation of what must be going on in the rest of it. The parts that we can't see that don't ever show up on any data anywhere, even tick. So what we're, what we're assuming, and we think reasonably assuming, is that U.S. banks are, are still saying we're, we're not seeing anything good here. We're going to continue to pull back in our cross-border dollar activities. And we're reasonably assuming that that extends into other places as well, that, that are these shadow areas that we can't see. All right. So we have to – we want to talk about the land of the rising sun. We're going to do that through the lens of the Middle Kingdom. But to set the – the groundwork here. We want to talk about the pirates of the Caribbean and the cradle of Western civilization, Europe and the Caribbean. What are these loci of euro dollar creation and redistribution doing? I'm going to pull up some graphs. Yeah, what we're seeing in the other regions that aren't Japan, if that's where you want to, let's start with those. The major euro dollar regions, these offshore US dollar spaces are the Caribbean and Europe. Obviously, Europe makes sense because that's where the term euro dollar comes from. It comes from the continental dollar, which became European dollar because of this European dollar market that, that showed up in the 1950s. But euro dollar really means all these offshore places, including the Caribbean, but also some parts of Asia, not just Japan, but outside of Asia, too. There's, there's a relatively robust U.S. dollar market, euro dollar parts uh, in Singapore, Hong Kong and other places as well. So in those three areas, what you see is that going back to 2008, obviously the system changed. Something happened. You know, you're, the, the uh, global financial crisis, which was a global, global, the first global dollar shortage, or what we call Euro Dollar One, was not a one-off temporary event. There was a partial recovery up until around 2000, the middle of 2011, when we had a second global dollar shortage show up which was really the fatal blow to the entire system. Any idea of recovery after that point, because going back to Henry George, what these tokens are, are an impediment in the machinery of exchange for the global economy. And that's why we don't get recovery. But what the banking data shows us is that, you know, since 2011, we've had a couple intermediate, uh, intermediate spasms as well. And since March, 2020, which was, you know, March, 2020, which was the big event, We've got these three regions at least retreating and retreating pretty heavily in, in, the, in kind of the same amount that they had early in 2018, which triggered you know, the emerging market crisis of 2018, as well as what became the rest of euro dollar number four. So it's, it's the, these Europe, the Caribbean, non-Japan, Asia, the banks there are borrowing fewer dollars from their American counterparts since March of this year, which is the opposite of what you would expect to see if things were going in a reflationary direction. And it's even worse than you see on this graph because of some data issues and some things going on in the Caribbean with non-banks and CLOs, which we, won't, we don't have time to really get into here, other than the fact to note that, Emil, you're not, you, you really aren't going to a Baccarat game. You're actually a James Bond villain. You, you're, the Cayman Islands is actually your lair. And so all this Caribbean trouble in CLOs is really directly responsible to you. You just... You just play a mild manner podcaster by day, but as you're as you're you're letting the mask slip here by because you're dressed for your night job 
which is as a James Bond villain. But when we remove when we remove your James Bond villainy, what we see from the uh, when we remove the Caribbean non-bank contributions to the system, what we see these things become more clear, especially the euro dollar number four uh, hole, which has gotten much bigger since March. What about this graph that I'm showing here? Because what is the difference between graphs number two and three? I think number two included non-banks. And you say that's fine, but really the heart of it is banks. And that's yeah. why we're looking at the third one. Is that right here? Right. As we've said all along, the Eurodollar system is a bank-centered system. And non-banks, let's, let's be clear, non-banks are things like mutual funds, money market funds, other financial vehicles. And they also include you know, these special investment vehicles that were supposed to have been uh, extinct or, or pushed into extinction after the first global financial crisis. But that's the reason why we have this CLO problem in the Cayman Islands is that the non-banks are much greater than uh, just, you know, money market funds or mutual funds. They're, they're financial entities that are not, you know, depository institutions. For, let's, let's put it that way. But so when we remove some of those non-banks and look at just the banking sector in those three regions, you kind of see how things have gone since the beginning of 2018. There is a big dollar hole and it has grown bigger this year. It hasn't been fixed by the Federal Reserve. All these promises to bail out whatever market, QE, massive expansion of bank reserves, all these things have not convinced the, these major region banking systems to, to uh, borrow dollars from their American counterparts that they had, as they had done in the pre-crisis era. And that's really, you know, the larger point here is that QE doesn't solve anything. QE didn't fix anything. It's a banking system that's broken. So for our audience that isn't watching this, but instead listening, the three graphs I would describe as showing the exponential escape velocity growth before 2008, peak, then a valley, a peak heading into 2011, then a long valley. And then depending on what you want to look at, we saw the start of another peak if you include the Caribbean and the CLO activity. But if you take that out as perhaps not representative of the whole system, we see a plateau if you include the non-bank activity, which is important. But then if you look at the real heart of it, the heart of it, just the banks, the Caribbean, Asia, Europe, official institutions, what we see is peak, valley, peak, and then just a unending dribbling lower and away. And I think that's, that very well explains what is happening in our global economy. But this is a story about Japan. And in graph four, you layer on Japan, Jeff. What do we yeah, see one now? Reason why, before you change the graphs, Emil, go back to the other one. You know, that big dip in early 2018, that was consistent with not just, you know, it wasn't just the, the regions we're showing here. The Japanese were a big part of that too. So in the beginning stages of euro dollar number four, it was completely, totally system-wide. Everybody was involved in getting the hell out of the dollar, these cross-border cross dollar arrangements because they saw this coming, you know, this, you know, this was not a globally synchronized growth. This was not, you know, uh, inflationary acceleration off into the sunset of recovery at long last. It was quite the opposite. Things were going the wrong way early on in 2018. And what's interesting and what's important about Japan is that, yes, they participated the same way that everybody else did in 2018, but ever since around October of last year, 
Japanese banks have been borrowing hand over fist from their American counterparts in U.S. dollars in a way we haven't seen in many, many years. And so that kind of complicates the picture somewhat, especially since you realize what happened last October, last September, October, and add over top of that, you know, the Chinese yuan's exchange rate with the dollar, which has been suddenly rising after falling precipitously during this euro dollar number four bank, uh, bank uh, withdrawal. All of a sudden, Japanese are borrowing dollars from Americans, CNY is rising again. It leads us to believe that maybe there's a connection there, but, you know, what, what is that connection? Well, that, I guess, okay, hold on a minute, wait a minute. You just introduced the, the CNY, the, Jap, the Chinese currency, and I guess that was the original point that you're trying to get to in this article is to explain why is the CNY rising when other emerging market currencies are not doing so well? And we saw something similar in 2018, except there was a difference back then with Japan. So is, do I understand it correctly? Have we explained to the audience that you think there's a connection with Japanese banks and the CNY? And how does it all to get, tie together? Yeah. And back when uh, 2017, when CNY was rising, what we didn't see were U.S. treasuries piling up in the PBOC's hands or the safe hands, which, which, which would, would corroborate and indicate that there was a, a, a lot of dollars available and that the Chinese were easily accessing the euro dollar funding markets. And that's what happens. These, uh, these euro dollar funding arrangements lead to dollars ending up in official hands, which then get converted into U.S. treasuries, the PBOC buying treasuries and whatnot. So... We would expect that if CNY was rising, the U.S. dollar falling against the Chinese currency, that they would be buying treasuries because there's lots of dollars behind that CNY rise. But we didn't see that from around September 2017 forward. CNY kept going up, but yet there weren't the treasuries. In fact, the treasuries started to fall, which kind of suggested something else was going on. What that something else was, was it became euro dollar number four, this fourth global dollar shortage. But specifically with China, what we saw was Hong Kong banks suddenly started borrowing heavily from their American counterparts and then a bunch of stuff going on with a Hong Kong dollar, how it was exactly mirroring uh, inversely the Chinese yuan's relationship to the U.S. dollar. So it suggested that, okay, China was doing something specific through Hong Kong's banks that wasn't happening to the rest of the system. Except that, of course, that all that all fell apart in April and May of 2018 when everybody got smacked by what was this next rising dollar episode. So if we're looking back at 2017 versus 2020, we see kind of the same things again, right? We see CNY extremely strong compared to everybody else. It's, it's even way outdone the euro on the upside, yet we don't see treasuries going back into the PBOC's hands or safe or anywhere else. In fact, just the opposite. The other part of tick that I showed in, in the article was that uh, Chinese mainland holdings of treasuries have sunk to the lowest level in years. They continue to decline. So we're not seeing the uh, systemic signs of dollars going back into China that we would under reflation. So now we start to look for alternatives, what might be going on. And lo and behold, we now have this Japanese thing taking place. But it's not, it doesn't seem to be Japan as part of everybody else. You know, a, a widespread systemic reflationary event. It's just Japan. When the rest of the world, the Caribbean, Europe, and the rest of Asia, ex-Japan, are saying, no, we're not doing this dollar stuff. 
and it's just CNY that's rising. It's not other emerging market currencies. They are up a little bit from where they were, obviously, at the crisis highs in March, but they're not surging ahead like CNY is. In fact, most uh, emerging market Asian currencies are still much lower than they were before the crisis began. So what we're seeing is specifically CNY strong, Japanese borrowing dollars from U.S. banks, and those are the only parts that are, that are doing these things. Everything else is still in the toilet. Everything else is still in dollar shortage, bad kinds, you know, rising dollar, all that deflationary stuff, except for Japan borrowing from U.S. banks and CNY strong in a very isolated case. So what we're, what we're, what we're thinking is that there has to be a connection there because, first of all, we saw it with Hong Kong, but second, because there's really not many other alternatives to explain this. And really, and I think I want to be clear about that, that, you know, what's happening between Japan, what's going on between Tokyo and Beijing, we don't really know. That's, that's really the mystery here. What specifically is taking place? What are Japanese banks doing? What we're saying is that there's something unusual in these two places. We think they're probably connected. And there's, it's, it may be, you know, and there's some other stuff going on too that we haven't, we'll have time to get into, but there are connections there that, that uh, pique our interest. I would love to get into it more on our next episode, Jeff. So hold back. Let's do a cliffhanger. That's what professional broadcasters do. I don't know what you would call this show, but let's pretend we are. Let's do a cliffhanger and let's talk about some of these things, what they might be as we look into the shadows next week. Yeah, and I think, you know, if, if any readers have their own theories, maybe that's something we should do. Let's solicit some, you know, uh, people who have been paying maybe closer attention to some of the details. Maybe they have ideas and can fill in, fill in some of our gaps here. Or maybe just refute our, and say, hey, you guys are crazy. You got it all wrong. I don't think so, but uh, maybe we do. And so, hey, let's, let's make this a collective project. Send all the complaints and the hate mail to at Emil Kalinowski on Twitter. Send ideas, suggestions, and helpful notes to at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. And if you want to send lewd doodles or anything like that, you can do on the YouTube channel. In the comments section, just search for Making Sense.